Amen. And I do also want to thank all of you for your testimonies. They do encourage, they strengthen, and you don't know when the Lord speaks through you to someone else who's struggling or who might be facing the same issues that you face. I believe it's a little like 1 Corinthians 14 uh, when we have these times of testimony um, and each, uh, each is using the gift given by God to encourage and edify. And if, there, if you're lost and you're here with us this morning, you probably do not understand a lot of this talk about God healing people and you have a natural response that says those are naturalistic, medicine does those things, technology fails us and we misdiagnose and, and all that. And so you're not weird if you're thinking that you're natural. But Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 14, when you come in, and he, he said lost men will come in among you. And when they do and they hear you prophesying, they hear you testifying uh, of the goodness and the grace and the gospel of Jesus Christ, then that's an opportunity for them to hear and believe. And so you've been given the opportunity to hear the body of Christ, and now you're given the opportunity to believe in Jesus Christ for salvation. And I would encourage you to, towards that. I would encourage you towards that. And as we preach God's Word now, which is also uh, a part of expressing the, uh, God's gifts to us, uh, would you turn your mind to these things? There's plenty to think about, I know. There's lots of distractions, but turn your minds now. Focus uh, for these minutes on what God has to say because He is speaking through His Word. He has spoken and He's still speaking through His Word. It is living and breathing, breathing and active uh, among us. And so, as Bruce testified, the Word of God brings us to the throne of God where we might be changed by His grace and we might be made His son, His daughter. For eternity. So let's turn our hearts and minds to these things. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the resurrection applied. He must reign, part two, uh, here. We were here last week and we're back again. During the past two sermons, we've looked at the presence of the resurrection in the teaching of the Old Testament and in the teaching of Jesus Christ and the healings of Jesus Christ. By the, by the way, Jesus resurrected people in his ministry. We read about that last week. Now, I do want to make it clear. Some of you may have thought about this, but didn't those people die again? And yes, to be correct, those resurrections were a, were a picture of the true resurrection, but they were not the final and true resurrection. Jairus' daughter still died. Lazarus lived and died again. They were we might call them resuscitations, but I don't say resuscitation because we live in the day of CPR where we say we resuscitate people who fall in the deep end, can't swim, drink some water. These people weren't just passed out, not breathing. These people were actually dead. Actually dead. For hours, in some cases, days in some cases. And Jesus resurrected them. Jesus brought them back, resuscitated them back to life, but they did not receive eternal bodies. That separates it from the final resurrection, okay, which we're all going to see a little bit about today. The final resurrection will mean when you come out of your grave, hearing the voice of the Son of Man, Son of God, you will hear His voice and you will come forward. Those who have done righteous to the resurrection of life, those who have done evil, to the resurrection of judgment. That's what John 5 says. Jesus speaking. So, don't, don't mistake. Jairus' daughter still died. Peter's mother-in-law still died. Lazarus still died. 
they were just pictures of the final resurrection. We're talking about the final resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15. We looked at the Old Testament, the promise of a resurrection. We looked at the ministry of Jesus and Him saying, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me, even if he dies, yet he lives. I mean, it's a promise straight from Jesus Christ that belief in Him unites us to Him in such a way that we live for eternity. Okay, that's the final resurrection. That's what we're talking about here in 1 Corinthians 15. We're, we're looking at it. We're studying it. Now, if it's in the Old Testament and in Jesus' ministry, then today I want us to look at the references of, to the resurrection and the preaching of the apostles. And, and if you'll hold your place in 1 Corinthians 15 and then turn with me to Acts chapter 1. Since these are all in Acts, I will, I'll just have you flip with me. It'll just be page after page after page. You're going to see the emphasis here in the resurrection. When Luke begins, he, here's the thing. It's striking to me. Of all the things the apostles could preach about, they always were preaching about the resurrection. They, I'm sure that they taught about many other things. There's no question they did. But the resurrection was prominent in their teaching. The resurrection of Jesus Christ. And this would go against some who would say, Oh, the resurrection's a rather late doctrine. Introduced in the 2nd, 3rd, 4th century after Christ and His apostles are dead. Then the church, needing some supernatural power, began to talk about the resurrection of Jesus and rumor it around and there was no one to dispute it. And so it's a new doctrine. It's, it's made up. It's a fairy tale. And we don't need the resurrection anyway, right? Because as long as we believe sincerely in Jesus, then we'll be saved. This, this book, Acts, the book in the Bible, disputes that straight ahead. The resurrection is not a doctrine that was invented by people a couple hundred years after Jesus died. The resurrection is something that they began to preach immediately after His death, burial, resurrection, and ascension back to heaven. And we're going to see it. I want us to look together. If you look at Acts chapter 1 and you begin in verse 20, uh, 21, it's, 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 the, the, it's the disciples' description of their work, their ministry, okay? And I, I want us to... To look at it. So one of the men who have accompanied us. Now they're looking for a replacement for Judas, right? We, we've got 11, we need 12. Judas went astray. Judas betrayed Jesus. Judas killed himself. Judas is not of us. He went out from us because he was not of us. He's the a first New Testament recorded for us, apostate. And they're looking for a replacement. And look what they say. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went and in and out among us, beginning, they're being very specific, this man needs to be someone who's with us, beginning with the baptism of John when he baptized Jesus in the Jordan until the day when he was taken up from among us. One of these men must become with us a witness to what? His resurrection. When they wanted to describe their ministry on the earth, the apostles, what are you boys doing when you travel around to these synagogues? We're telling people that Jesus was resurrected. And, and, and let's look at the proof of it. Okay, don't take my word. Let's look at God's word. Acts chapter 2. Look at verse 32 through 36. Peter preaching at Pentecost, the first recorded sermon for us post the resurrection here in Acts. And he says in verse 32, this Jesus... God raised up, 
The resurrection, prominent in their preaching. And of that, we are all witnesses. That's our job. That's what we do. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David... Now, he goes on to describe the resurrection for us. Don't miss it. The resurrection and the ascension, the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus are tied together as a triumvirate. They're important. That's very important. Jesus didn't just die. He was resurrected. Jesus wasn't just resurrected. He ascended back to the right hand of the Father where He sits enthroned above heaven and earth. Look what He says here. David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ. This Jesus whom you crucified. The resurrection is prominent in their preaching. It's tied with death, resurrection, ascension, and enthronement. It's all tied together. We're going to see that why that is so important today, that we don't miss it. So many miss that in both preaching, teaching, reading, listening. You miss it. It's key. He was died. He died. He was resurrected. He was enthroned because of his resurrection. And now he rules. It's very important. Acts chapter 3, verse 15, And you killed the author of life. Peter giving a, a reason for his resurrection, I mean, his, uh, his healing of the blind beggar, the lame beggar, excuse me. This is what he says to the authorities at Solomon's portico. And you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. When they were giving a witness of the power that allowed them to heal people, what was the power? Where did it come from? The resurrection of Jesus Christ. Jesus heals this man, not me. To this, we are witnesses. To, to the witnesses of what? To the fact that God raised Jesus from the dead. That's their job. That's what they do. And His name, and in this name, by faith in His name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. The resurrection empowered the healings. The resurrection. What are they saying? Jesus healed the man. Peter said, it's not I who healed the man. Not me. It's not John. What did the beggar say? Give me some silver and gold. And Peter said, silver and gold have we none. But what we do have, we give to you. What did they have? They had the resurrected Jesus Christ. That's what they gave to the man. The resurrected Jesus Christ. Look at 26. God having raised up His servant, Jesus, sent Him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. He raised Him up and sent Him to you. That's what their testimony is. If we look over at Acts 4, again, here we see that Peter and John are before the council giving, uh, giving a defense for why they're preaching in the name of Jesus. Verse 11, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you. How was it rejected? How was he rejected? Ultimately, he was rejected because he was crucified. They killed him. Okay? So they got the killing. The resurrection is coming. But right now they say, you resurrect, you, excuse me, you rejected Jesus. You rejected the stone. 
How did you reject him? You crucified him. You rejected him, the builders, which has become, Jesus has become the cornerstone. Not just some stone like another prophet. He is the cornerstone that ties the whole structure of God's temple together. Jesus, the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. He was rejected by the Jews by crucifying Him. They rejected Him. And God accepted Him as the cornerstone by how do we know that? By His resurrection we know. Look at Acts chapter 5. The apostles are arrested and then they're set free. And Peter answered to them, the council. They've just said, hey, look, go on out. But we charge you, don't ever teach in this name again. And this is his response. We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus. When they gave testimony, they always talked about the resurrection. How, when's the last time you talked to your neighbor about the resurrection? Your coworker, Your lost family member? When's the last time? The Protestant church today has fallen into the habit of talking about the crucifixion separated from the resurrection. What I'm trying to tell you is when they preached, they always talked about the resurrection. The resurrection is central, it's prominent, it's key. The God of our fathers raised Jesus whom you killed by hanging Him on a tree. God exalted, there we see it again, the death... The resurrection and the exaltation all tied together. God exalted Him at His right hand as leader and Savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. There's the the resurrection in Acts 5. If we keep looking in Acts 7, verse 53. Stephen, the first martyr recorded for us in the New Testament for his faith, is preaching to these Jews who have gathered together. And he goes through their history. And then in verse 55 we see, but he, excuse me, in verse 54, I listen like reading about them grinding their teeth. I, I, I don't know why. I guess I'm weird like that. But they're so angry that they're grinding their teeth at him that he would dare to find Christ in the Old Testament has angered these people. They're grinding their teeth. Now, when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at Stephen. But he, full of the Spirit, gazed into heaven and look what he saw, the glory of God and Jesus standing at his right hand. The resurrection is is true. How do we know Jesus is in heaven? He's not in a grave. And he's not there in spirit. He's there in his body. Notice he didn't see God the Father. He saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at his right hand. He looked into heaven and saw him there. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. And then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul, who would later be Paul. And we know, and we're going to see in a minute, that this very experience probably impacted Paul more than any of the other uh, persecutions which he had labeled and, and waged against the church. It changed him because Stephen boldly proclaimed what? That Jesus is God and He is resurrected and at the right hand of God. Hearing that witness sparked something in Saul, the persecutor of the church. And so then he, falling to his knees, said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. 
Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. The power of the resurrection was in his preaching, in his teaching, in his witness, and it came out through his witness in the fact that he commended his spirit in expectation of his resurrection because Christ is resurrected. What a beautiful picture. Acts 9, Paul on, Saul on his way to Damascus to persecute the church comes face to face with who? The risen Jesus Christ. Saul. Saul, why do you do what? Persecute the church? Give people a hard time? Stone people like Stephen? No, look what it says. Look for yourself. Why do you persecute me? Jesus saying this to him. You persecute me. You can't persecute a dead man, can you? You can't persecute someone who's dead and behind a stone in a grave. But you can persecute a man, the Son of Man, God in the flesh, who died, was buried, and resurrected from the dead. Jesus is not dead. Jesus is alive. We see him here speaking. And he says, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. You're persecuting me. And then he tells him to rise and go into the city and you will be told what you are to do from here. This is Saul's conversion. He becomes Paul, the great apostle. Look what happens. And, and when Ananias, who was sent to heal Saul's blindness, look what he says. Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you. Jesus is alive. Jesus is resurrected. That's what Luke's emphasizing in these stories. That's what he's telling us over and over and over. You don't serve a dead God. You serve a living God. His name is Jesus. He's been resurrected. And immediately Saul went in and proclaimed Jesus in verse 20 in the synagogue saying, He is the Son of God. What would change a guy like Saul from being such a harsh persecutor of the church to being the greatest professor of Jesus Christ, the greatest defender of Jesus Christ. What else but the resurrection? What else but the fact that he saw Jesus in his body on the road to Damascus? Then in verse 22, But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. How did he prove it? I've seen him. I've seen his resurrected body. He is God. If you aren't God... He'd be in a grave. He's not in a grave because he is God. And God has accepted his sacrifice. And in verse 34, the healing of a man. Again, Peter says, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. A dead man can't heal anybody. Only a living man can heal. Jesus is alive. Peter says, Aeneas, Jesus heals you. He's alive. Rise and make your bed. Then we look into Acts 10. I know I'm using a lot of references, a lot of Scripture, because Scripture is all that will ever convince you under the power of the Holy Spirit that this is a true teaching. My words don't matter. They pass away, but His Word never passes away. They put Him to death, verse 39, in explaining to the Gentiles the good news. They put Him to death by hanging Him on a tree, but God raised him on the third day and made him to appear. Not to all the people, but to us who have been chosen by God as witnesses. Again, they say Jesus was killed, Jesus was buried, Jesus was raised. And now we're employed. Our one goal is to tell you about his resurrection. We're witnesses to it. 
And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to judge both the living and the dead. Again, I say to you, a dead man cannot judge anyone. A dead man is dead. Jesus isn't dead. He's alive. He heals. He appears in his bodily form. He stands at the right hand of the Father. And he will judge the living and the dead one day. He is alive through the resurrection. We look over at Acts 13. And we see Paul preaching. I've showed you Peter preaching. I've seen, you've seen Paul's, uh, Paul's uh, conversion experience with the living Christ. We've talked about Peter's healings. Now look at Paul. For David, after he had served, verse 36, the purpose of God in his own generation died. He fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. Why is he emphasizing that? Because, listen, but he whom God raised up did not see corruption. It's the same reason that Peter emphasized it. Because, see, in Psalm 110, verse 1, it said, sit at, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And for centuries upon millennia, the Jews had believed that was about David only. And the apostles are saying, Psalm 110, 1 is a prophetic word from David to us, saying that Jesus would never see corruption. He would be raised up. That wasn't about David. David is dead corrupting, probably eaten by maggots at this point. Jesus is not. He is alive. That's what he's wanting to emphasize. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sin is proclaimed to you. He can't forgive sins if he's dead, but he's not dead. He's alive. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. The law can't free you, but a living, risen Savior can free you. That's what Paul tells them when he's preaching at Antioch. And then uh, we see, for good measure, Acts 17. Just so you know, that it wasn't just one sermon Paul preached and using the resurrection, but it was consistent in his preaching. Acts 17, verse 30. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now He commands all people everywhere to repent because... That's very important. You need to repent. Why? Because He has fixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness. You need to repent because the judgment is coming. And if you do not repent, you will face that judgment. Who's going to judge? God the Father? No, to be more exact, by a man whom He has appointed. Who is appointed? And of this, He has given assurance that He appointed Him. How did He give us assurance? To all of us, assurance has been given by raising Him from the dead. And someone says, how do you know Jesus is the Son of God? Your answer needs to be, because He died, He was buried, and He was raised from the dead. We have life, eternal life, because Jesus was raised from the dead. Luke emphasizes it throughout his book. I hope these passages have made it clear that it was an emphasis of the apostles and their ministry. And so we see it here. But how else? How else could I stress to you the centrality of the resurrection to our belief in Christ? How else could I do it besides go through these passages and show you that it's central to our faith? We cannot be saved. Listen, we cannot be saved without the resurrection. If Jesus isn't resurrected, then our faith is in vain, Paul says. And preaching is in vain. And we're all in our sins. So let's just go live and let live. 
live for today because we don't know if we'll live tomorrow. But we know we can live tomorrow because Jesus is raised from the dead. So therefore, we restrain ourselves by the power of the Holy Spirit. We put to death sin. And we see the sanctification of God coming on us every day. Why? Because we are confident that one day we will stand in front of this living, active, breathing, bodily Jesus who will judge the living and the dead. And when I face Him in that day, I want His righteousness covering me. Not only His righteousness covering me, but I want to be in Him so that when the gavel falls in judgment, it will not fall on me. But it has already fell on Him, and I'm free. That's what I want. And that comes by the resurrection and the preaching of the resurrection. So I can't emphasize it any other way, but to go through here and show you that this is not some new doctrine, this started literally when Jesus ascended back to heaven. Immediately, they say, we're witnesses of the resurrection. We need another one. We need 12. So that's the point here. I wanted to show it to you. Christianity is not a belief based on death. Christianity is a system of belief based on life, eternal life, through resurrection. Our message should be like honey to a lost man who is hungry for food. Our message should be like cold water to a lost woman who is hurting and in fear of death and judgment. Why? Because Jesus died on her behalf on your behalf, and He was furthermore raised from the dead. Don't ever stop a gospel presentation until you tell them He's been raised from the dead. It's incomplete. Don't ask them to put their faith in a dead man. Ask them, tell them, implore them, plead with them, beg them, please believe in this Son of God who died, was buried, and raised up. From the dead, ours is a system of life, not death. He is alive. He is alive, and we know He is alive. He died in the place of sinners. He satisfied the wrath of God against those who believe in His name and was raised from the dead never to taste death again. Ours is a message of eternal hope, eternal joy, eternal celebration. Jesus is alive. He is alive. The Apostle Paul not only witnessed to the resurrection in his preaching, but it was a major part of his writings to the church. We're going to see next week, just so you know, in case you haven't figured out yet what we're doing, going to the Old Testament, then Jesus' teaching, then the apostles' teaching. Guess what comes next? The epistles. The writings to the church. Did they write about the resurrection? Paul did. Paul did in every letter he wrote. He wrote about the resurrection. It was central not just to his preaching, but to his writing, which is recorded for us in holy writ forevermore, which will never pass away. And I'm glad that it's there, because it's the only hope for lost men, that they be raised from the dead in Christ. Here we are in 1 Corinthians 15, bridge, gone from the introduction into the body of the sermon. Some of you got more right there in the introduction than you've gotten in a long time. Don't choke. Swallow hard, and we're going to get into the message now. The sermon's on 1 Corinthians 15. Now that we know they preached it, let's preach it. The resurrection is key to our preaching. It needs to be. And we look at a passage like 1 Corinthians 15, verse 20 through 28. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die. 
so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. So what is the order? Christ, the first fruits. Then in his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers up the kingdom to his Father, God. Right? After he has destroyed every rule and every authority and every power. For he must reign. It's telling us how he reigns. How does he reign? He reigns bodily from the right hand of God right now. And he is making his enemies his footstool. Some of you have no hope or little hope or fading hope because you don't know that Jesus, listen to me, is reigning and ruling now. We're not hoping one day He'll take over. He's taken over. And we reign with Him. And we reign in Him. We're going to see how that applies to our sanctification in the next verses. He must put His enemies under His feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. When will we know He has put all of His enemies under His feet? When He comes again and death is no more? For God has put all things in subjection under His feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it's plain that He is accepted who put all things in subjection under Him. When all things are subjected to Him, then the Son Himself will also be subjected to God the Father who put all things in subjection under Him that God the Father may be all in all. So let's see the first point here. Let's pull out some key points from this passage. Our, our, first of all, representation before God has been transferred from Adam to Christ. If you believe in Christ, if you have faith in Christ, if you have, if you have counted yourself among His people, if you have taken Him as your treasure, as your pearl of great price, if you have said He is enough, if you have said there is none like Him, I will hold on to Him. If He has become your shelter against the storm, if He has become your shelter against the wrath of God, then you have been transferred from the representation of Adam before God to the representation of Christ before God, and that is key. Let me give you an example of what he's talking about here. It's federal headship. That's really what he's talking about. Now, that may be a strange term, but listen. Mike Rogers is our representative in the United States Congress. So, on Monday morning, if there is a vote in the Congress, and Mike Rogers, the distinguished representative from Alabama, stands in the well of the the Congress and votes, who has voted? Mike has voted. Yes? Yes? Who else has voted? Every person in his congressional district has voted. But I didn't cast a vote. I was at work. Yes, you did cast a vote. When he cast his vote, he represented us in that vote. Therefore, we voted. Legally, the people of the United States vote on every bill that comes before the Congress. But I've never been to the Congress, Carlton. You don't have to go to the Congress, literally, to the building. You don't ever have to raise a card, shout out yes or no. You don't have to do any of that because your representative is there. And legally, he voted for you. You understand it a little better now? We live under a representative government. 
And so it's easier for us to talk in those terms. Sometimes we get lost when we're talking about sin and we're talking about Adam and we're talking about Christ. But let's go a little further here. Well, who was Adam? You, if you're in this building and you have not placed full faith trust in Christ, he's not your treasure, you're still in Adam. And so what do I get if Adam is representing me before God? What do I get? The Bible says that Adam was created in the image of God. Humans are not dolphins. Dolphins are not humans. Side note, I'm very concerned about the oil leaking out into the ocean. That bothers me. I think we're to be good caretakers of this world. and Therefore, we ought to be pressing on everybody that they can do something about it to do something about it. But can we please stop the in, inconceivable idea that we should be mourning the death of ten dolphins? They are not human. They're animals. They are not valued in God's value system like a human. They are not created in the image of God. When you're in Adam, Adam was created in the image of God. It means a lot. I try to explain to my children. But in the image of God, at the very least, means that we have received from God a core being. The Bible refers to it as a heart, a core of our being, which communes with God, should commune with God. And when Adam was created, he communed with God. Okay? And he is our representative, and he was crowned with glory. How do we know? Psalm 8, 6 says that God created him and crowned him with glory. What does that mean? He made him co-regent, co-king over the earth to subdue it and have dominion over it. Man was intended to be God's co-regent, ruling in this realm of the earth under the headship of God, the great king. Okay? So, he was created in the image of God. He was crowned with glory. He chooses... At the tree when his wife eats the fruit to eat the fruit, which is disobedience. He, as the small king, rebelled against the authority of the ultimate king and did what he wanted, not what God had commanded. And so he was created in the image of God. He was crowned with glory as a ruler over the earth. And when he ate that fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, his image inside him, that heart was twisted. The Bible says it was turned to stone. It says it died. It says that in Adam, death spread to the whole world. And so we see this truth. That he was chose to sin and cursed with death, both physical and spiritual. And that's what Paul says, if we look at it here in verse 21. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die. That's what we've just described. So if you are here without Christ, you are under the representation of Adam, who, though he was created in the image of God, has chosen to be disobedient to God. And we were in his loins. We chose with him. Just like Mike stands and votes for us in Washington, Adam voted for us and we literally voted against God in rebellion. And now all of us are born in this twisted image, this heart of stone, this dead spirit. That's us. If you're here without Christ, that's you. But that's not the end of what Paul writes. Look what he says. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. 
That's the key. That's the key. That's the hope. That's the beauty. Here it is. As death came by a man, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. What does the resurrection applied to me mean? I am resurrected with Christ. When you put your faith, trust, hope in Christ and Christ alone, you are truly resurrected. Like you were in Adam's loin, at, like you were with Adam in the garden, and I was there, and all of humanity that would ever live was there. Listen, when Christ went to the cross, those who believe in Him were in Him dying. But I wasn't on the cross. Yes, you were in Christ. For Christ has, for I have been crucified with Christ. Galatians 2, verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ, yet it is not Christ who lives, but it's not me who lives, but Christ who lives in me. What's Paul saying? I was crucified in God's accounting of His federal headship over all things. He sees those who are in Christ as already dead to sin and alive to Him. We are united with Christ. We had a representative, Adam. He failed us. He failed and we failed. But Christ did not fail. What, what, who was Christ? Christ came the image of God. That's what He's called, by the way. The image, the imprint, the very nature of God. He came in the flesh, crowned with glory, chose to obey every point of the law, died on the cross, for sinners like you and me who believe in His name, was buried and raised on the third day. And when He came out of the grave, listen to me, you and I who have faith in Christ came out of the grave with Him. With Him. We're not one day going to come out of the grave only, but we have come out with Him. How do I know this? Hold your place and turn to Ephesians chapter 2 quickly and let's listen to what Paul says. Again, this is God's Word to us. Ephesians 2, beginning in verse 4, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, we were under Adam. We were dead, made us alive together with Christ. Now we are in Christ. By grace you have been saved, He says. And then look what He says, And raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places. Let me tell you something. It is a true fact that if you this morning have placed your faith in Jesus Christ, how can I face tomorrow? Because He lives, I can face tomorrow. What does that mean? That's a song, I know, but what does it mean? It means that when He died, I died. When He was resurrected, I came out with Him. And now that He's seated in the heavenly places at the right hand of God, I am seated with Him there in the heavenlies. But I don't see heaven yet, and I'm not there with Him yet. We're getting there in the text. I I can't, Carlton, I don't get it. I'm, I'm here on the earth. He's there. Yes, but wherever He is, we're there. Whatever the representative is doing, we are doing. So when God looks at His Son, Jesus Christ, and says, With you I am well pleased, He is saying He is well pleased with everyone who is in His Son. Next time you sin and you run from the hand of God because you're afraid that He is a damning judge, remember He is your Father and He loves you in His Son. The next time that you feel all alone and you feel you're standing and no one else will stand and you get the temptation to fall down and moan and feel sorry for yourself, remember that He stands in the heavenlies and you are seated with Him. If nobody else stands and you go to the stake and are burned for Him, He is standing for you. And because He is standing, you have a standing in heaven. 
and you are there with him forevermore. We don't realize the power of the resurrection, folks. I don't realize it. You don't realize it. I told some people this week, every week I'm getting more and more excited about preaching about the resurrection. We are with Christ. He has gone behind the veil of the temple and He is before the mercy seat of God and you and I are with Him. When Barry says we have responsibility, it's exactly right. When J.C. was sick and in the hospital, so many of you prayed and poured out your heart to God begging on His behalf. And I want to tell you, you were praying here and Jesus was praying there. And when he prayed, you prayed. And God healed a man. You didn't heal him. You have no power. But Jesus is resurrected and he healed him. When this church grabbed hands across the aisle and prayed that Lisa Swinney would come home from the hospital healed, Jesus Christ behind the veil prayed on her behalf and she was healed. And so when he prayed, you prayed. Do you get it? When you prayed, He prayed. When you pray the will of God, He's praying. We are with Him. And so you say, why should I believe in Jesus Christ? Why not? All you get in Adam is death. All you get in Christ is life. It's a question of living and dying that we're talking about. When we are in Christ, we are in such a union with Him that we receive all that He has because He has taken the wrath of God on our behalf. Everything we deserved, He took. Everything that was His by right, we receive through Him. God considers us as if we really had experienced what Jesus experienced on the cross. Conversely, there are things that happened to Him that we did not deserve like resurrection and receiving the approval of God. And thanks to our union with Christ, we get those benefits. Do you get it? 2 Corinthians 5 says, He made Him who knew no sin to be sin on our account, that we might become the righteousness of God. The great exchange occurred. He took your sin and He gave you His righteousness. If, if that doesn't, if that doesn't stir inside of you, praise and worship. Then I, I just humbly say you're, you're probably dead. It's not magnificent to you, and you're bored with a sermon like this because you don't know him. I don't care about when you were baptized. I could care less about when you came and held a preacher's hand and said some simple prayer. I'm telling you, if when hearing the things of Jesus Christ and especially His resurrection, there is not within you life stirring, beating, wanting to cry out, fall on the face, scream out to Him in praise and honor, then you, my friend, are probably dead and need to cry out in repentance that He saved you. Because the responses in Acts, if you go read Acts this week, you will see they're one of two. You either gnash your teeth and throw stones at the preacher for saying Jesus is God, or you fall at their feet and beg, how can we be saved? It's one of two. You say, I never picked a stone up and threw it at anybody. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Every time you turn your back to Him, you've stoned Christ Himself. You've driven the nail in Christ Himself. You said, I don't want Him. 
And He is so precious. Wouldn't you just come to Him? This song, we're not going to get through this again today. I'm so sorry. Um, I got a bunch more points. We'll get to it next week. I want to close by reading the words to you of a song that has ministered to me this week. I'm not a good singer, so I won't sing it for you. You might leave. It says, just meditate on this. I will glory. This is by Sovereign Grace Music. Vicki Cook and her husband wrote it. I will glory in my Redeemer. That's the name of the song. It says, I will glory in my Redeemer whose priceless blood has ransomed me. Mine was the sin that drove the bitter nails and hung him on that judgment tree. I will glory in my Redeemer who crushed the power of sin and death, my only Savior before the Holy Judge, the Lamb who is my righteousness. I will glory in my Redeemer, my life He bought, my love He owns. I have no longings for another. I'm satisfied in Him alone. I will glory in my Redeemer, His faithfulness, my standing place. Though foes are mighty and rush upon me, my feet are firm, held by His grace. I will glory in my Redeemer who carries me on eagle's wings. He crowns my life with loving kindness. The covenant love of God. He crowns my life with loving kindness. His triumph song I'll ever sing. I will glory in my Redeemer who waits for me at gates of gold. And when He calls me, it will be paradise, His face forever to behold. What I'm saying, what Paul is saying, is what we deserved was the wrath of God. We were in Adam. We were dead. And not because we are anything to count. Not because we are worthy of anything. We are worse than worms. And yet, Christ stretched out for us. And when he was stretched out for you, when he was stretched out for me, the pain was searing. The pain of the nails, the pain of the torture that he had been through, the splinters in the wood, it was all pain. But not just physically did he pain himself for us, but spiritually he died for us. He faced spiritual death. He was separated from God. He cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He cried it out. So you wouldn't have to cry out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He cried out so you wouldn't cry out. And He offered Himself as a pleasing sacrifice. Now I just want to say, He is the first fruits of the resurrection. Maybe... I explained it last week and I still stand by my explanation. But there is yet another explanation 
Paul's not only talking about harvests. He in this way is saying that Christ is our offering. Leviticus 23 says this, And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land that I give you and you reap a harvest, you shall bring the sheaf of the first fruits to the Lord so that you may be accepted. Not so you'll have a good harvest, but so God will accept you. Bring the first fruits. You shall bring the sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest to the priest, and he shall wave the sheaf before the Lord so that you may be accepted. On the day after the Sabbath, the priest shall wave it. And on the day when you wave the sheaf, you shall offer a male lamb, a year old, without blemish, as a burnt offering to the Lord. Paul says Christ is the first fruits of the resurrection. What is he saying? He was stretched out. He received both physical and spiritual death for you, for me. And he was buried. And Paul says he was raised up from the dead. A first fruits of the resurrection. What I'm saying to you is on that Sunday when Christ came forth from the grave, He was a holy sheaf waved before God so that you and I would be accepted in Him. Do you see it? Do you see it? Don't wave the flag of I came and got baptized. Accept me. Don't wave the flag that I worked hard in your name, so love me. Don't wave the sheaf of a good family and success in a career and a life lived in morality. Don't wave that sheaf. It'll be an offering like Cain gave. God will not have it. When you come to the Holy of Holies of heaven, on that judgment day, there's one sheaf waving for you. And his name is Jesus, the Christ, the King of Kings. So what I'm saying is, he was stretched out for you and he was raised up for you. The first fruits of the resurrection that is to come. There comes a day when we will hear his voice and we will come forward. The full harvest of his work on our behalf. And God will be satisfied in His Son to accept us. Now, all that's left is the decision. What are you going to wave? What will be your sheaf before the Lord? Will it be Christ? If so, repent and believe. Turn from Adam and yourself and put yourself your full faith, yourself in Christ and Christ alone? Or will you say, this Christ that you talk about, I'm not so sure, I'll wave my own sheaf. May I just tell you, it won't go well. It won't go well. You will not be accepted. Be accepted. Come to Him and experience the real resurrection that He gives through His work. Let's pray. Father, we have...